good morning. Welcome to All Nations. And uh, yeah, like Pastor DC said, thank you for joining us on this New Year's Day. Um, I'm not going to say Happy New Year because we've already said it like four different times, but it was in the manuscript. You can ask uh, Hannah in the back as she, as she texts through the sermon. Uh, I'm going to just blow through that one. But um, yeah, if one of your New Year's resolutions is to attend church more regularly, congratulations, you are on the right track, 100%, you know, uh, one for one out of 52, and so let's, let's keep the streak alive. Um, now, when we think of New Year's resolutions, uh, we're, we're often thinking about change in our lives. That's, that's ultimately what it's about, change in our lives. Things that we need to start doing uh, and things that we need to stop doing, whether it is uh, you know, starting a diet, stop drinking soda, you know, uh, start exercising, stop smoking, drinking, whatever it might be. And so we're always thinking about these changes that we wanna make in our lives for New Year's resolutions. And there's this undergirding belief when we approach the new year with these resolutions that, that if we make these certain changes, our lives will be better, are they not? There's this undergirding belief that if we make these changes in our lives, not only will our lives be better, but perhaps we might be better people. I don't know anyone who, doesn't, who makes a resolution who doesn't think they need it, who doesn't think that it's good for them, who doesn't think that it will help them, uh, be a blessing for their family or friends or whatever it might be, we all think that these New Year's resolutions are for the better and they will produce for us more good, more happiness, more fulfillment. So friends, what is it that you would like to change in your life? Is there anything that you believe really needs to change? In 2017, as, as today is the first day and maybe you've written out your resolutions or maybe you're writing them right now or thinking about them. What do you believe needs to change? Or just to up the ante, is there anything that has to change in your life? If you were to tell somebody this has to change in 2017 or else everything is gonna come undone in my life. Perhaps your doctor has told you your cholesterol is too high. You have to change your diet. Uh, that is serious talk. That's why men don't want to go to the doctor. We don't do our annual checkup because we don't want to be told that, that we can't eat fried chicken and we can't eat uh, you know, red meat and we need to cut back on the car. I don't want to hear that, right? So I don't go, even though my wife's uh, uh, in the healthcare industry, right? Uh, students, perhaps you are on academic probation and you have to do better in school or else your parents will disown you or else you will not be able to attend that university anymore. And, and it's not like, oh, I just need to do a little bit better because I want to get into a grad program. It's I have to do better or else I'm going to get kicked out of school. And the pressure is real. Or perhaps your parents are telling you, you have to find a job. They are tired of paying your allowance. They're tired of you freeloading. You have to find a job and then you have to find a boyfriend or you have to find a girlfriend. Uh, obviously in that Order. The last one is less important than the first two. Um, well, those are all important changes that we might be facing this year. And I'm not here to belittle any of them. But today I want to talk about one change I believe that all of us need to undergo. There's one change that I believe is more precious, more powerful, more, more transformative than all of those before mentioned changes. And that is a renovation of our hearts. 
And that's why we're actually starting a new series today. Uh, starting with the new year, we're doing a new series. And the title of the series is, is called Renovation by Grace. It's a seven-part series, series, and we're focusing on how to experience change by the power of the gospel. That's what the whole series is about. Renovation by Grace. Uh, on, the, on our graphic, we used like a blueprint. I tried to be cool, and I asked what my wife thought about it. She's like, eh, kind of dated. She called a little basic. My, my feelings were hurt. Um, so if you want to volunteer for our creative arts ministry, and you can do better than all of those visuals that I post on our Facebook and on our website, that's me, all right? And so if you can do better, I would love for you to join the team and, and show me better, and, and maybe we'll see. Anyway, so that's our new series, Renovation by Grace, How to Experience Change by the Power of the Gospel. Now, I love the imagery of renovation. To take something that is existing, to imagine what it could become, then we have to strip it down. We have to deconstruct it and then build it back up again. We see it all the time on TV, especially this channel on cable called HGTV. I don't have cable anymore with my wife, but we miss it. And we would always just watch these home renovation projects and we would get so excited. Like one day, our dream kitchen. One day, our dream yard. One day, we're gonna get that pergola. We're gonna get that pergola. Thanks, Jason. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, but, but it's fantastic. They do so many renovations and they take these ordinary things. They take these ordinary homes they imagine what they could be. And by hard work and a lot of money, they build a dream home. It's fantastic, right? Well, that's what we wanna do in our series. We wanna come to God as we are, as ordinary, as, as freckled, and as troubled, and as weak as we might be. We wanna come to God as we are, and we wanna see his greater vision for our lives. We wanna see his purpose, his plan for our lives, what he can do in our lives, and we wanna experience his renovating work in our hearts, his renovating work in our minds, in our hands, in our passions, in our joys, in everything that we do, we wanna see God renovate us. It's probably gonna take a lot longer than seven weeks. In fact, it'll take an entire lifetime. But today's January 1st, 2017. It's as good a time to start as ever. Now the key to this entire series, and you'll hear it over and over again, whereas a, a home renovation, it just takes money and manpower, especially if you find this couple named Chip and Joanna Gaines. They are the, mm, they do it. They are the renovation king and queen. All you need is money and manpower. Well, the true renovation of our hearts, that can only happen by grace. Okay, you're going to hear this throughout the series. To truly be renovated, it's not something that we can do with our diligence, our discipline, our planning, and our programming to be really renovated, uh, to become new creations, to live a life that God has designed and destined for us. It can only happen by grace. With our works at best, we can change our habits. With our works at best, we can change some of our behaviors, but only God can change our hearts. Amen? And that's what this series is all about. The title of today's message, it's the intro to the series, and it's the need for renovation. The need for renovation. And my goal is to get you all on board our series and to show you from the scriptures that we all need it. That renovation is not just for the super spiritual or renovation is not just for the baby Christian, 
right? If you've, been, if you've been in this church for 5, 10, 20 years, and you're like, you know what, Michael? I'm about as renovated as possible. As possible. I've gone to like three retreats a year for 20 years. I think I'm good. No, we all need renovation, right? From the baby Christian to the eldest senior Christian, right? And so I want to get us all on board. Now, here's one thing. The Bible, even though I love the word renovation, the Bible doesn't use the word renovation when it's talking about our need to change, In fact, the Bible uses a different word, and it's called sanctification. Sanctification is a theological term, but simply put, sanctification means to be made holy, to be set apart. One of my seminary professors, he defines sanctification as God's work in people to deliver them from the power of sin and make them more like Christ. I like that. God's work in people to deliver them from the power of sin and make them more like Christ. There's three things in that definition. First, it's not our work, it's God's work. Second, we're being delivered, rescued, torn away and saved from something and that's the power of sin. And then we're saved towards something, we're being worked towards something and that is to become more like Christ. God's working that out in us in this thing we call sanctification or the the trendy word is renovation. Simple concept, but such a difficult process, is it not? Isn't it so hard to be like Jesus? Regardless of whether you wear the one WWJD or like Derek Fisher, you wore it on both wrists, it's still hard. It's still hard to to live like Jesus and to follow after Jesus and to be conformed in the image and the passions of Jesus Christ. It's so difficult. It's so difficult that many of us have given up on it. Think about that. Have you given up on sanctification? Have you given up on pursuing a holy life, a godly life? Have you given up on growing in your holiness, growing in your knowledge of the word of God, growing in your prayer life? Now, I'm not asking you whether you're still going out to small group. Obviously, you guys are still coming out to church. Thank you for joining us today at our service, especially on New Year's Day. I'm not asking you whether you're still tithing. I'm not asking you whether you're still serving on the worship team or our hospitality team or down in our education department. I'm asking whether you are still pursuing Jesus. Are you still striving to be like him? Do you desperately long to be like Jesus? You see, there's so many of us who would rather sing about Jesus, who would rather go on a short-term missions trip and tell people about Jesus through arts and crafts, skits, games, personal conversation. We we would rather tell people that Jesus loves you, that God has a marvelous plan for your life. We would rather feed the poor in Jesus's name than actually have our character changed by Jesus. You see, it's so much easier just to do the church stuff to follow along all the church programming than to actually have a confrontation with Jesus and be challenged and questioned and invited in to pursue him and be like him. We'd rather cut a check than cut away the sin from our hearts, right? Which is easier, write a check or cut away the sin, the idolatry, the passions and the obsessions that you and I have for ourselves and for this world. That is so much more difficult, but that's exactly what we need to have sin cut away from our hearts and to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. 
Church, I have three reasons why uh, I'd like to share with you today on why we all need renovation. Why we should restart our pursuit of holiness and sanctification. Or maybe for some of us, for the very first time, to really pursue Jesus. Um, The first is this. It's the reason for our redemption. The first reason why we should pursue Jesus and holiness and sanctification and long and why we need this renovation, it is the reason for our redemption. I pulled this answer from a guy named Kevin DeYoung. He's a wonderful pastor, one of my favorite uh, Christian authors today. Uh, And he wrote a book called The Hole in Our Holiness. The Hole in Our Holiness. And it's a fantastic resource. I would commend it to you. It's on Amazon, Kindle, paperback, whatever it might be. Um, And in it, he writes this question. If someone were to ask you, why did God save you? How would you respond? Why did God save you? Why did God send Jesus Christ as one and only beloved son to die on the cross, to redeem you, to ransom you, and to save you? And your answer might be because he loves us. God loves us. And you know what? That is true. That is a good answer. And maybe somebody else would say, you know what? I have another answer. The answer would be for his glory to the glory of his name, for the purpose of his kingdom. And you know what? That's a fantastic answer too. We are saved for the glory of his name. But there's a third answer that I wanna share. And it comes from Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. Why did God save you? Why did God save us? Why did God send his only beloved son to be our ransom, to be our substitute? This is what Paul says. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Why did God choose you? Why did God bless you? Why did God adopt you? Why did God make you his son and his daughter? So that we should be holy and blameless before him. He saved us unto holiness. Do you see that? It's the reason for our redemption. Let me share a couple more verses just to make this crystal clear. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7. Paul writes again, for God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. That's about as clear as we are gonna get today. God did not save us from our sin so that we can keep on sinning, right? It's so important. God didn't send Jesus Christ to die on the cross for you just so that you can keep up your addiction to gambling, or pornography, or you can keep cursing your neighbor, or you can keep being angry and contentious with everyone. So you can keep living in your pride and in your greed. That is not why God saved you, not for impurity, but in holiness. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship created for good works. Church, you see, this is the work of God making us new creations. In Christ, God comes to us right where we are. He comes to us in our moments of sin. While we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. Jesus comes to us right where we are, but you know what? He never intends to keep us where we are. Jesus never intended to leave you exactly where you are, living the exact same lifestyle with the same passions and pursuits as you had when you first met him. He wants to move you. 
He wants to grow you. He wants to sanctify you and renovate you so that you can now do good works, which God has prepared beforehand, that you would walk in them, that your life would be identified as a life worthy of the gospel, as a life that reflects and imitates Jesus. That's why you were saved. That's why we were saved. Now, church, if this is so clear and evident from the scriptures, why do we struggle to take holiness seriously? Because don't we? Do you struggle to take it seriously? Do your friends struggle to take holiness seriously? I, I do. I do. My wife does, right? We struggle it, with it. Um, I believe one reason why is because we don't want to be called legalists. Okay? Legalist is like, ooh, don't call me a legalist. That's like one of the worst things you can call somebody in the Christian you know, context. You know, if you're not Christian, you're like, that doesn't sound that bad. Um, but we don't want to be called legalists. And legalism, it's another kind of Christianese term, but it's the belief that we must do something in order to be saved, that we have to somehow merit the favor of God, that somehow we can earn the grace of God. And if you've ever heard the good news of Jesus Christ, you know that's absolutely not true. It's not true that we cannot earn, uh, it's absolutely not, yeah, we cannot earn God's favor. We cannot work for our salvation. Ephesians 2 tells us that we've been saved by grace and not by works so that no one can boast. To go even further, the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, you know what he calls our works? Our works, our best, our gifts, whatever we can offer God. You know what Isaiah calls them? Filthy rags. Our works are but filthy rags. And so for many of us growing up in a gospel preaching context, the word work or works, it's kind of a bad word. It's kind of a bad word in the Christian vocabulary. We don't know what to do with it. We just think we have to run from it, right? But what did Ephesians 2 tell us? No, we were created for good works. It shouldn't be a bad word. But because we have this stigma against works, when holiness begins to feel like work, what do you do? You back off. When prayer and reading the Bible feels burdensome and you don't like want to do it like with, with a great passion, you know what you do? You convince yourself, hey, let's not be legalistic. I don't need to read the Bible today. I don't need to pray today. I don't, I don't want to be legalistic, so I'm just going to put it down and go back to Angry Birds or my phone or drama fever, whatever it might be. My wife's really in a drama, I shouldn't say that. Um, <laughs> when serving the church begins to feel like a duty and a responsibility, and you start using that other word that's, that's difficult in the church, obligation. Oh, I feel obligated to come and set up chairs every Sunday morning. You know what we do? We tell ourselves we should take a break. We should step down till our hearts are right. But if we take that attitude... If we are afraid of, of duty, if we are afraid of responsibility, if we're afraid of doing good works in the Christian life, then we've missed the purpose of our sanctification, of our, I mean, the purpose of our salvation, which is for holiness, which is for good works to the glory of the name of Jesus. The gospel tells us that though we are not saved by works, God saves us by his grace to do good works. I love what Matt Chandler says. He says, hey, we, we are not saved by works, but we work for our Savior, okay? Just think about that. We are, none of us are saved by works, but if, you, but if you're saved by grace, we're called to work for our Savior, okay? We shouldn't be afraid of that W word. 
We just have to get it in the right order. Grace and gospel produces good work in us. The second reason why we need renovation is because we can't survive the Christian life without it. So first, because we were saved unto holiness, right? The second reason is we cannot survive the Christian life without it. Let me explain what I mean by this. If we know that God has purposed us for holiness, if we know that God wants us to be more and more like Jesus Christ, then the longer we go without that change taking place in us, the more emptier we feel, the more hypocritical we feel, the more disdainful we feel towards ourselves, the guiltier we feel. We cannot stomach calling ourselves Christians without living like followers of Christ. We can't. We can't look ourselves in the mirror in the morning when we gotta get ready for church. We can't stand on the stage and serve on the worship team when we know we are not being sanctified. We don't have hearts that are being transformed. When all it is is outward behavior, you cannot sustain, you cannot survive the Christian life without it. And we've all been there, haven't we? We've been there where we're all an act, where it's all a sham and inside our hearts are dead and so burdened and guilty with sin. Jesus, when he was criticizing the Jewish leaders, he declared in Matthew 23, he said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. You see, the scribes and Pharisees, they did all the religious things. I mean, if you think about like our top servants, our top deacons that people are so committed, you know, the scribes and Pharisees, they, you know, tenfold of what we might be doing for the church today. The scribes and Pharisees had all the outward behavior of righteousness, but in their hearts, Jesus knew their hearts, their character was dead and in sin. They had no genuine love for God, nor did they have genuine love for others. They simply loved themselves and they were using religion to fuel their own desire for power, approval, and control. Guys, do you know we do that in the church? We use the church, we use religion to fuel our own power, to fuel our own approval. When we want authority, maybe you don't get it at work, right? Maybe you work a blue collar job and no one recognizes you and no one respects you. You know where you can get it? You can get it in the church. If you serve hard and you're always present and recognize you can become an officer, you can become a small group leader, you can become a missions team leader, whatever it might be, an elder or a deacon, and we can use the church, we can use religion to fuel our own vanity. And that's what these men were doing. Jesus calls them hypocrites. He calls them whitewashed tombs, impressive on the outside, but dead inside. In the same manner, if we come to church each week and we offer our outward gestures of service and worship to God without ever having a true renovation in our hearts, then we will find ourselves in a similar hypocrisy. And the longer we live in that lie, the more we will grow in guilt. Is that true of you? Have you lived in the lie where you call yourself a Christian? You call yourself a small group leader. You call yourself uh, a worship team member. You call yourself a missions team goer or whatever it might be. But you know it's in your heart. And there's no love for God. There's no trust in Christ. There's no love for others. There's only love for yourself. And you cannot survive the Christian life 
much longer. This is why we see so much burnout and moral failure in the church. Gifted men and women who rise in influence, who rise in authority because of a particular ability that they have, they all too often, often come crashing down in sin. I know 2016 was a huge year in, in politics and, and, and all these other cultural events, but it was also a huge year of moral failure in the church. Uh, on the local level and on the national level, we saw many Christian leaders fall. Fall to adultery, fall to greed and selfish ambition, fall to addictions to pornography, fall to ambition for power, misuse of financial funds. It's happened locally and, 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 and globally. Why does this happen? Because of the divorce. Divorce between who we say we are, how we present ourselves to be, and who we truly are in our hearts. See, these men, these women, they might have been great teachers, great musicians, leaders, but without an ongoing, genuine renovation in their hearts, their Christian lives could not survive. They couldn't live in that lie any longer. And rather than experiencing real sanctification, rather than cutting off sin, rather than putting sin to death and finding life in Jesus and being made more like Jesus, these men and women were enslaved to their sin and they were brought down because of their sin. Church, so how can we persevere? How can we persevere in the Christian faith? How can we be assured that we truly are Christians and we're not these whitewashed Pharisees? Because we all have that fear every once in a while. We're like, oh my gosh, am I just a hypocrite? Am I just going through the motions? Do I really love God? Do I really love the church? Am I really a Christian? We have those moments of crisis of faith. Um, I'm gonna tell you, I, I wanna share. It, it, the, the way we get assurance, the way we persevere, it's not actually through a miracle or witnessing anything supernatural. I think a lot of times we do. We're like, man, God, if I could just see a miracle, then I'll just believe for the rest of my life, right? If you just, you know, make the pulpit float or whatever it might be, or if you just like grow me like five more inches, I'll follow you the rest of my life, right? I mean, God, God can do anything, right? God can do anything, why not, right? Um, it's not even the privilege of being used by God in ministry, right? And man, sometimes you're like, oh, just like use me. And then like, it'll be awesome. And, and then I'll know you're for real. You know why I don't think any of those things are really helpful? Because Judas Iscariot saw all of those things. He, oh, <laughs> he saw all of the miracles. He was a follower of Jesus Christ, one of the original 12. He was actually sent out and he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God. He didn't just see Jesus do miracles. He, parked, he, he, he did them himself. And we all know what happened with Judas. You see, if we're holding out saying, God, show me something supernatural and miraculous and then I'll know you're real. Odds are God's not gonna offer that. And if, even if he did, we still wouldn't follow. We still wouldn't believe. You see, our greatest fuel for the Christian life, our greatest assurance of salvation actually comes from ongoing sanctification. It's by experiencing God renovating your heart, by God transforming you and making you more like Jesus. And the more you experience this, the greater assurance you have that you truly are his. Jesus says in John 15, eight, this is what he says. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. How do we know we're his disciples? By doing miraculous things? 
No, by bearing much fruit, by bearing much fruit. And what are we talking about? What is this fruit? What is this fruit? Well, I wanna say we bear the fruit of God. We bear the fruit of the spirit found in Galatians 5. And it says, verse 22, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Do you see sanctification there in the fruit of the spirit? You see that? There are things that need to be cut away, things that need to be put to death and things that need to be taken on, things that need to be put on. And so bearing fruit, it starts in our hearts. It begins in our character. It begins in in, in our loves and our passions and our affections. That's what bearing fruit is and that's what God wants for us. And the more we experience this kind of transformation, this kind of fruit bearing, as we grow in patience and love and kindness, then you will know I am truly a disciple of Christ. I don't just believe Jesus with my words. I don't just sing about the gospel, but I really do believe the gospel. I know it. The Lord is mine and I am his. We need this because without this kind of fruit, church, without this kind of work of God in our lives, you and I, we will not survive the Christian life. We will not survive it. The third reason why we need a renovation in our hearts is because our community needs it. So first, the gospel demands it. God demands it. Second, we can't survive without it. Third, our community needs it. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 5. Jesus says, in the same way, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I love that verse. So important for us. Do you see what Jesus is telling us about the importance of our sanctification? Do you see what Jesus is telling us about the importance of our good works that we produce genuine fruit for the glory of God? Why is this so important? Because the world is watching. Church, the world is watching. And when we shine as the light of the world, the world may see and give glory to our Father in heaven. Who is going to show the world the power of the gospel if it is not you? If it's not me, the church, the people of God, who is going to show the world the transforming power of God if it is not his people, his church, and his bride? The world is watching. And too often the world has seen a church that's fractured, a church that loves the world just as much as she does, a church that is as dysfunctional and as prideful and as fleshly as she is. The world is watching. What will we show them? My grandma used to always tell me I was a fourth generation Christian, fourth generation Christian. And so um, that means my grandmother's grandmother was uh, the first convert in our family. Um, I don't know exactly what that means, but to Koreans, like generations really mean a lot of stuff. And so I was like, oh, okay, 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 okay. So she's like, so you have to be a pastor. I was like, oh, I guess fourth generation pastor, I guess, whatever it might be. Um, but I always remember growing up in the church and I really appreciated that. It was such a blessing for us to uh, just grow up going to a vacation Bible study and, and having church friends and and playing basketball and ditching Sunday school and going to all the retreats, all that stuff. It was fantastic. Um, but I do remember that there was a season where um, our church back in Atlanta uh, had a split. 
Um, like some churches you probably heard about in Koreatown, we had fights in the parking lot. You know, you see these full-blown Korean, like 40, 50, 60-year-olds just exchanging blows in the parking lot. They're taking sides. Some are siding with certain elders. Some are siding with a pastor. And our church had a nasty split. You know, uh, the, the splintered group literally planted their church a mile and a half down the road, right? It's crazy. Uh, well, my father was very involved in the church. He wasn't an elder at the time. He was just a deacon. Uh, but I remember after that, uh, we stopped going to church. Sunday mornings were suddenly free. And uh, I never knew what was on TV Sunday mornings. I was bummed out that it wasn't cartoons. I was like, why, why aren't there cartoons on Sunday morning? It's like sports. And when you're like, you know, in ninth, 10th grade, you know, you're like, yeah, it's kind of lame. Or junior high, it's kind of lame. Um, well, so we, we were kind of in this weird season where our church stopped, our family stopped going to church. Um, I believe, I wholeheartedly believe that God brought our family back to church when he brought me back to church, okay? Uh, I don't say this out of arrogance or pride, um, but um, in, in ninth grade, um, even though I grew up in the church, in ninth grade, I had this conversion experience. I believe that there's this winter retreat. I gave my life to the Lord. In 10th grade, uh, I got my car, and I just started driving out to our Wednesday night prayer meetings. Now, we lived on the opposite side of Atlanta, and it was through traffic because our Wednesday night prayer meetings, they started at like 7 p.m. And so right after school, you know, after soccer practice, whatever it might be, I drive to the other side of Atlanta through 45, hour and a half uh, traffic and go to a one-hour prayer meeting. And we pray, and it was like eight of us. We just sit in a circle saying kumbaya, whatever it might be, and I'll come home. But I just kept going week after week. And my parents were like, what is going on with Michael? And then it was Friday night Bible studies and I joined the worship team and I, and I get involved in student leadership. And I, and I believe that when my family saw God at work in me, it renewed their hope that the gospel was real. That God was able to transform anyone. That nothing was impossible for him. You know why? Because in eighth grade, I got suspended from school for bringing marijuana to campus. You know? And in ninth grade, I got caught by my parents, sneaking out, drinking alcohol, you know, whatever. This is eighth, ninth grade. We have some parents who are like, you know, they have junior high and high school kids. They're like, oh my gosh, you never think your parents are doing this. Right? I was about as lost you know, and rebellious as possible. You know, I was stealing my parents and my grandfather's cigarettes, whatever, in it, and I was always getting caught. And I was always getting caught. And they're like, some fourth generation Christian, right? And yet, when they saw God at work in me, and we saw, when they saw the grace of God in my life, and when that started bearing fruit in the way that I spoke to them, in the way that I spent my time, in the way that I was conducting myself, in my character, in my passions, in my values, in my relationships, that produced in them faith again. My family was watching. As God was working, my family was watching. And church, I wanna tell you, when God is working in you, your family is watching. When God isn't working in you, your friends, your community, your coworkers are watching. And we are not here to boast in ourselves, we're here to boast in the cross. And you have an opportunity to show them you couldn't change yourself, but God can change you. You couldn't renovate yourself, but the power of God and his Holy Spirit could transform you. 
The world needs to see this. The world needs to see you being sanctified and made in the image of Christ. Parents, your children need to see that. It's not enough to bring your kids to church every Sunday, drop them off over a kid's wing, make sure they put that name tag on the back, on the back shoulder where they can't pull it off and say, hey, we are a gospel-centered family because they see everything. They see how you guys interact, whether you respect one another, honor one another, support one another, compliment one another, or they see where all, there's bickering, dysfunction, and bitterness. They need to see the gospel at work in you. What they need to see are their parents pursuing Jesus. They need to see you guys really reflecting the heart and the life of Christ in that home. That's what it means to be a gospel-centered home. Not just VBS and then paying for their retreats when they get older, right? (laughs) It's being sanctified and pursuing Jesus. Your community needs it. I've shared three main reasons why we need a renovation by grace. We need to pursue holiness and sanctification again this year, church, because it's the reason for our redemption, because we can't survive the Christian life without it, because our community needs it. Let me give you one final encouragement, and this is one of my favorite encouragements when it comes to this doctrine of sanctification, because at the end of the day, we're like, oh my gosh, this is so hard. I've tried so many times. I failed uh, so many times. Let me give you this last verse as a word of encouragement. Paul writes this in Philippians 1. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What is Paul talking about here? And he's talking about this amazing promise. It's a technical term, but I hope you will remember it. It's called progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification. And this is the promise that God will make you like Jesus. He will. I know there are times and seasons where you feel there's no growth. You feel like your back's like, you don't know and you doubt whether it's even possible. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What an amazing encouragement, is that not? Because so often we failed. We failed our Bible reading plans. We failed our, to attend our prayer meetings. We fail to, 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 to curb our cursing or control our spending or, or to be as generous and, and merciful as we want to be. We failed ourselves a thousand times. And yet in God, we have this promise that he will perfect you. He will not abandon you. He will bring you to completion, to the conformity of Christ. That is good news for all of us. God has not given up on you. Let's trust him. Would you pursue him? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, you sent Jesus Christ to die for us. And we thank you that even in this moment, you show us, God, that you have not abandoned us by the gift of your word and by the presence of your Holy Spirit. God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would work powerfully in our hearts to convict us of our sins, to help us overcome, to help us cut off, to help us turn away 
from these sins. We want to lean upon your Holy Spirit to make us more like Jesus. God, we cannot do that on our own. We have tried and we have failed and we have tried and we have failed again. But we thank you that with you, there are new mercies every morning. And with you, we have the Holy Spirit who's greater, who's more powerful than the power of flesh and sin in our hearts. God, would you transform us? Would you have your way with us? We want to invite you right now to make us more like Jesus. Church, would you take a moment in personal prayer and reflection? Would you speak your heart to God? Maybe it was just a verse or an idea or an illustration that that God might have used in the message. Maybe we need to go before him in repentance and confession of sin. Or maybe we just need to, to hope again that God can change us, that God can transform us, that he can make us like Jesus. Would you take a moment in personal prayer and speak your heart to God? Let's pray, let's respond to him and let's worship him together.